go to uh, Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, if you're not familiar with how the, uh, the scriptures are laid out, it's, it's toward the back. It's one of the bigger books toward the end of the New Testament, the end of the Bible. And we want to come together, and although this may not feel like a Christmas text, I hope that as you dig into it, you'll see how very much it's not only a Christmas text, it's also an Easter text. I also want to encourage you, I know this may seem very old school, but I also want to encourage you to actually have a Bible open in front of you somehow, some way. Uh, I think one of the things that can happen to all of us if we've been in church world, I'm going to talk to church world first, if we've been in church world any amount of time, we can kind of over time begin to think that we've already kind of got it all figured out. We know the layout of the Bible and we kind of got the gist of it. But I'm telling you this, if, if that's where you are, you will be surprised at not, not at how the word changes because it doesn't, but how you change. And so when you approach the scriptures, you're approaching the scriptures in, in a different place than you were maybe last year, two years, three years, four years ago. And for those of you that are not a part of church world, you may be uh, visiting with us and such, and you need to keep me accountable. We all do. You all need to keep me accountable. But I want you to see what I'm talking about. I want you to see where I'm at and see where I'm getting my information from, because otherwise it's just a TED Talk. TED Talk where you come for a little bit and you listen to somebody, and boy, that, that's that's very nice or that's not very nice. I want you to engage with the scripture. So we have uh, pew Bibles that are in front of you. You have, you may uh, use a phone. Be careful of those. Turn off those notifications because sometimes those things can take you along. He helps me every so often. He, many times he helps me be that as it may, just something to consider. So would you stand as we honor his word together from his word? Let's go to Hebrews chapter two, starting in verse nine. We're going to go to the end of the chapter in verse 18. And it says this, but we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children, of, and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And surely is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. So every year I pull down some books look at some articles to try to help me make sure that I am staying focused on Christmas. 
That might surprise you as a, for, with me as a pastor that I need to keep that focus. But just like you, I get pulled in a lot of different directions. And Don Whitney one time, he said, don't ever let the ministry get in the way of Jesus. Because we can get so busy with doing stuff for Jesus that we can forget about Jesus. And so one of the books that I ended up pulling down because of his compelling title was a book by Tim Keller called Hidden Christmas. And this is how he describes why he titled the book the way that he did. He says this, because of the commercial indispensability of Christmas, it will remain with us as a secular festival. My fear is, however, that its true roots will become more and more hidden to most of the population. And maybe that's the case with you is that uh, you, you, you may have come in here and you may not realize what Christmas is all about. You kind of have an idea that there's a residue of Christianity and something spiritual about it. But you, you think about some of the songs that are playing in the mall, like Joy to the World, you know, or, or Hark the Herald Angels Sing, where it's talking about born to give them second birth. Or like the title, which was lifted from Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Veiled in Flesh the Godhead See. The whole verse is, Veiled in Flesh the Godhead See, Hail the Incarnate Deity, Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Now, if you're not familiar with any type of biblical or Christian theology along that way, and I would even say Hark the Herald Angels Sing is packed with it. It's, it's packed with it. Then you're listening to it and you may be like, what in the world is he talking about? This doesn't make any sense. The tune seems pretty nice. I heard it in It's a Wonderful Life this past week at the very end where Zuzu or one of the kids was playing Hark the Herald Angels Sing and everybody comes together. You know, but do we understand what the message and the roots of Christianity are all about? The busyness of the season can remove us from the business of the gospel. Got to be careful. And so we approach a passage that may not be identified by many of you because of the characters and these nativity scenes that you see sprawled all over the church. There's not a lot of those characters that are in this passage, but there is one. And this is both a Christmas passage and an Easter passage. And Christmas and Easter are really inextricably tied, aren't they? Because when you hear from when the angel was talking to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So that's connecting what the Christmas season was historically about and what the Easter season, Resurrection Sunday, is all about. Jesus came, and really there's a cloud over it, right? Jesus came to die. This little baby that we see in these manger scenes came to die. Why? And the question that's posed to us this morning is, why did God become man? Why was that necessary? Was, this, was there no other way to accomplish this? And the fact is, no, there was not any other way to accomplish it. And this passage of Scripture, yes, it's thick, but I'm hoping that as we maneuver through it, we will see why Jesus had to come, what he did when he came, and why it matters to us even now. Because it's not just about him tasting death for everyone. It says that. But there's also something that happens, not just in the hereafter, but there's something that happens now. He's doing something for us and with us and in us and through us now. So can we take a look and see what this passage has to say? The first thing I want to just show you is how Jesus came to make us a family. If you go to verse 9, it says that we, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's why I read from Psalm 8 earlier is that he was made for a little while. How long was that little while? Well, history tells us 33 years. He was here on earth, flesh and blood, 
fully God, fully man, but he was here on earth for 33 years to accomplish a mission that would affect all of eternity. That would affect all of history, but would affect all of eternity as well. For a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, just so there's no confusion. And it says here that he was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Context matters. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that he spent from Hebrews 1.1 to Hebrews 2.5 showing how Jesus is better. Now, I know some of you, whenever I go out there and I say, well, Jesus is better, someone's like, no, Jesus is the best. Got it. I got it. But what we're saying here is, is that Jesus is better, in this case, than the angels. And then later on, he's going to talk about how he's better than Moses and better than Melchizedek, better than the sacrifices and better than the earthly priesthood. So, so Hebrews is laying out from everything that was mentioned in the Old Testament how Jesus is far superior to everything. And so it's talking about here about the angels. It was very popular back then for the Jews to be able to elevate and almost worship, at that point, angels. And so when they see Jesus as a human being, and they see the angels, they're like, well, the angels are better because the angels were never a human being. The angels don't have any limitation. The angels didn't suffer. The angels didn't die. And it doesn't seem appropriate or fitting. You see that word later on in verse 10. It doesn't seem really fitting or appropriate that someone who is the Messiah, who is going to rescue us from death, would die. That doesn't make any sense at all. So why in the world are we doing this? Well, he talks about here that in order for Jesus to be crowned, he had to go through the cross. We see this. He was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Now, whenever we deify or look at people like over history, there's this thing called hagiography where we kind of take away all the, the, the bad stuff of people and we elevate the great stuff. And when we, when, we, when we do that to people, what we do is we admire them because they escaped death. You know, Patton, Eisenhower, MacArthur, Genghis Khan, you know, all of these people, all Alexander the Great, although he didn't escape death and none of them escaped death, but they were so powerful in what they were doing that they were seen more as a conqueror. Why would we elevate and deify one who is crucified? It doesn't make any sense to the world, but this is what God did in the world to show his glory. The Apostle Paul addressed that earlier in 1 Corinthians 1. In verses 21 to 25, it says this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Let me pump the brakes here. It's talking about here, not that it's a foolish thing that God has called us to preach. It's foolish as far as the world is concerned. This is wisdom, but the world sees it as foolishness. And that's why he goes on in verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So for the Jews, and he's writing to the Hebrews, by the way, 
So for the Jews, this was a severe stumbling block. And so the writer to the Hebrews, by the way, we don't know who that is. And by the way, Jeopardy people, it wasn't Paul. Did any of you watch that? I mean, do a timeout, right? Did any of you watch Jeopardy when there was the final Jeopardy question? And the question was, this, you know, this letter of the Apostle Paul quotes from the Old Testament more than, than any others. And the other two that were deemed, eh, got it wrong, they were actually correct. It was Romans. Paul didn't write this. We don't know who wrote this. Paul would have identified himself if he wrote this. It's just, just one of those things. But I know some of you were like, wow. But when, Paul, when the writer of the Hebrews was writing this, he was writing to people that were really struggling with the crucifixion of Christ. Then they were struggling, not only that, but they were being persecuted and they were thinking about walking away from Christ to go back to what they knew. Because when they would go back to what they knew, the Jews were protected in the Roman Empire. Christians weren't. Jews were. They got grandfathered in. But it says he was made a little lower than the angels. He suffered death. And that's why it gets into verse 10. For, this is a purpose statement, for it was fitting that he, now who he? Well, he, it says here, was, it says for whom and by whom all things exist. Think about that. He is not only the agent of creation, but everything that was created was created through him and for him. Says that's, that's the same thing in Colossians 1.17. Everything that's made was made for Jesus. This is why we have to take care of what we have. This is why back in Genesis 2, we're called to be stewards of the earth, to take care of things. Now, while I may not agree with some of you may, you know, when we're looking at the climate change issue and other things about, you know, making sure we're taking care of the earth. Now, there may be some discussion about it, but there is something innate about all in all of us as image bearers of God that we want to take care of the earth. However that looks like, that we want to take care of the earth. That's because we're image bearers of God, and God has called us to this stewardship. But he goes on, and he says, In bringing many sons to glory should be made the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Not perfect through avoiding suffering. We want to avoid suffering. If in our Christian walk we're going through that valley, we want to avoid that. But yet that's the mechanism that God often uses to refine us. And so it talks about here, he who sanctifies those and those who are sanctified. Let me read that again. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. I know some of your versions may say all have one family or all are one. It's going through the same thing. It all originates with God the Father through the Son, and we are part of his family now. And what I love in verse 12 is that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. Every so often, in every place that I've served, I I come across someone who believes that they're better than somebody else. Or I come across someone who, even as a Christian, they name themselves as Christians, I'm better than somebody else, or they don't feel like they're as good as somebody else. They may see somebody have a talent or a gift, and they're like, boy, I wish I could do that. Oh, I can't be as useful to the cause of Christ because I don't have that. Well, I just want to just remind you that God has apportioned to you exactly what he apportions to you for his use and for his glory. So be content in that. But there's sometimes that people feel like that they're better than someone. And what can happen is a sense of shame can develop. I can't believe that they're, why are they here? And some people just come right in and say it. I feel like I'm better than them. And other people come along and say, well, they really need, really need prayer. Oh my goodness, can you believe? And sometimes we we utilize that to feel some sort of superiority over someone else. 
Did you see what Jesus is saying here? He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Oh, by the way, when it's talking about that he brought many sons to glory, this is not talking about he's just bringing men to glory. The sons, that's an inheritance term. Because back then, it was the, the men were the ones that got the lion's share of the inheritance. But not so in Christianity. We are all treated as sons. We are all going to be part of that inheritance. And so when you come down here where it talks about that he brings many brothers, that's siblings, brings many siblings to glory. We're all being brought in there. And the suffering that happens, you know, when you see here, there's a quotation here in verse 12. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Now that comes from Psalm 22. And if you read Psalm 22, there is a passage right at the very beginning of Psalm 22 that Jesus says on the cross. In Hebrew, it's Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God. I learned it in the King James, so here you go. Why hast thou forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Because when Jesus was on the cross, he was taking all the sins of those who would believe. He was taking all of the sins and tasting death for those many sons of glory, for those many people of glory. He, is, he, is, he was taking that upon himself. And so for the first 30 verses of that 38-verse psalm is this lament and this picturesque display of what Jesus was going through on the cross. And if you read through it, you're like, my goodness, this is what he was going through. This is verse 31 that's being quoted. And there's a shift in tone. It's no longer a lament about suffering. Jesus' suffering was purposeful, but it was not permanent. When he died upon the cross, and he says that word, tetelestai, paid in full, it is finished. He absorbed and paid for and atoned for all of that on our behalf. And that's why he comes along and he says, I'm going to tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Why? Because we are family. We are sons. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We are family. He brings us all together. Our trust is in him. This is from Isaiah 8, 17 and 18. Children of God were called, not subjects of a king only but we're children of a father. Are you with me? Because God has given us something good here for us. And so when it talks about here that he is this founder, that he is this one, the founder of their salvation, that's a champion. That's a representative. That's someone who stands there on our behalf. And that's when we get to this next part where it's talking about not only are we family, but he delivered us from fear. Look at verse 14. Therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. Now, let me stop there. Does that need any explanation that we're flesh and blood? Get a puppy. You'll know your flesh and blood. I'm going to try not to mention this, this cat every sermon, or this dog, as the case may be, every sermon. But we are, we are reminded all the time because he's teething now. Um, flesh and blood. We got the wounds. It, it's all over the place. Uh, but so, so God will remind you that you're flesh and blood. But what that also is meaning is you're limited. Death is coming. And that's where he's, he's talking about here that, that since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death 
were the subject of lifelong slavery. I don't know how many of you in this room, um, when you think about death, if it brings you any sort of fear. In my position, every so often, I am talking to people who are either minutes away, days away, or weeks away from death. They have been given that verdict, if you will, that there's nothing more we can do, and we're going to do what we can to keep you comfortable. Have you ever had that conversation with someone? Have you ever been around someone where that's been the case? And some things come to the surface, don't they? Because every so often I have people that are like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm right with the Lord. Everything's solid. Everything's good. You know, he's paid for it. You know, they're there. And then there's others that I think, and I'm not dogging them for this, but there's others that are followers of Jesus and they're like, boy, what's it going to be like? And they may have some regrets and they may be thinking, I got to get something figured out. I got to get something straightened out with this person and and doing all of this. But there is this something that comes over us. But I think for, by and large, all of society, we're doing everything that we can to push death back, to, 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 to remove its effects. Now, we're living longer. Actually, it's starting to trend a little bit down now, but we're actually living longer than we've ever lived. I think I think now, it was about 10 years ago where we were living about 82 years old. Now, women are now living about 80.6, and men are still in the, in the late 70s. But, you know, they're still, we're, 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 it's trending upward. But it's not going to continue on. Earthly, is it? There's going to be one day, there's a, actually a Twitter account. I don't go onto the minefield of Twitter very often, but there is this one where it's the Twitter account that's called Daily Death Reminder. And they only post one tweet. It sounds stupid saying it, but they only post one tweet every day. You know what the tweet is? You will die someday. Right. Okay. So now you come across that. You will die. So, yeah. <laughs> I see, I see the looks, you know, cause you come across that and you know, there's people that respond. Thank you for that reminder. And I, you know, you can't tell sarcasm. <laughs> it's just, thank you so much for that reminder. But there's some that are like, you know, really legitimately thankful. And then there's others that feel like they have to post. Why did you tell me that? Why do you feel like you have to do that? But here's the thing. We're reminded of it all the time. We don't need a Twitter account to remind us that death is around us. Athletes peak at about 28 years old. And so they are, unless you're LeBron James or, or some other guy like this, but even LeBron James, he's 38. Now, 38 compared to if you live to be 80, you know, really that's not that long, but you, you, when you are born, you get this peak and then all of a sudden there is this decline. And someone warned me when I turned 50 that be careful because that check engine light's going to come on in a hurry. <laughs> and so now that's a reality, but then I respond, thank you for that. But, you, you, but do you see what we're doing here is that it is a reality. One day, you are going to die. And I remember there was a time when someone told me that this is how someone would lead off. I said this a couple of months ago. That's how they would lead off a sermon, so and so, a funeral sermon. So-and-so is dead. And man, that would receive very mixed reactions depending on who you were. And so when Jesus comes, he comes in flesh and blood. Why? It wasn't fun for him to do that. It was necessary for him to do that. Because look what's happening here. There's two things that happen in this passage that I just read to you. One is that he, he suffered death 
in order to, you see it in verse 14, to destroy the one who has the power of death. Now you're saying, well, good work, Jesus, because my dad died, my grandma died, my, my son died, my daughter died, my husband died, my wife died. Some power you have. So are we talking about physical death? Because all of us are going to suffer that. All of us are going to go through the physical death. No, the death that's being talked about was the death that took place all the way back in the Garden of Eden, where it was a spiritual death where we are removed from our relationship and separated from our fellowship with God. That's death. So when you die without Jesus, you're going to be separated from him in an eternal death. So we're all going to physically die, but that's not what's on the table before us. Spiritual death, spiritual eternity. It says later, it says earlier on, rather, in Hebrews 2, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You know what the answer is? If you neglect so great a salvation, you won't escape. I don't like that. I'm reporting the news. This is what the word tells us. And you do have a choice about whether you're going to listen to that or not. All I'm telling you is, This is what God has said in his word. What will you do with this information? Will it lead to a transformation? Or will it be just information that you just slide away? So he, it says here that, okay, he destroyed the the one who has the power of death. So, So Satan, the devil, the deceiver, the adversary is on borrowed time. And he knows it. And every day that goes by, he knows that one day it's going to be done for him. So he's going to continue his work to get us all off of what God is telling us to do. But verse 15, and to deliver those who, through the fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. He's going to deliver you, not just from death. Hear what's being said. Not just from death. He's going to deliver you from the fear of it. Okay, so you know you're going to die one day. You don't like that Twitter feed. You will die someday. But you know it. You know it. You can ignore it, but you know it. You don't have to fear it anymore. That's the one thing on this earth that people can't do anything about. Death. And we don't have to fear that anymore as followers of Jesus. How does that affect our lives? If you know and you have been delivered from the one who has the power over death and you have been delivered from the fear of it, does that change your outlook on life? Does that change your activity of life? When you know one day, one day is going to be my day. Teach me, Lord, Psalm 90, to number my days. Will that affect how you live up until that point? It should. I hope it won't just, well, I'm just going to cruise. And that's what's happened in our pulpits for so many years. And this is how I grew up. One day you're going to go to heaven. Yay, going to heaven. And that was all I was told. I wasn't told about living for Jesus. I was told I was going to have eternal life in heaven. But God has called us and given us his word to follow it and to live as we're called. If we say we're Christians, then let's do what he said to do because our hearts have been changed. And the Holy Spirit comes and rescues us by Christ from it all. So that's why in verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers. This is the only way that you're going to escape death 
This is the only way that you are going to have salvation is by trusting in the work that Jesus did upon the cross. That's why he's crowned. He went through the cross, suffered on our behalf, and now we can be and have his righteousness and move toward holiness. But there's more to it than that. We spend so much time thinking about the hereafter. Take a look at verse Verses 17 and 18 where it says, He had to be like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Well, what are priests? Some of you may have come from a certain background where they have priests. But priests are intercessors and mediators. They intercede for you. But they themselves have to make sure that if they're going to intercede for somebody else, that they themselves have to be made right. Well, Jesus didn't have to go through that because he's fully God. He was already right. He was already fully God in doing all of this. But because he identified with us, verse 18, look at what it says. For he himself has suffered when tempted. That was part of his suffering. Not just on the cross, but every single day, hour, minute, he was tempted. And it says later on in Hebrews, in every way like we are. So that you may feel like, well, I am too far separated from Jesus for him to understand what I'm going through. I've got to work my way up and I've got to make myself better so Jesus will love me and accept me. No, 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 no. He came to identify with you so that he would know what you're going through and then Since he persevered, it says he was without sin, he persevered, and now if there's anybody in the universe that knows how to help you, it's Jesus, because he knows exactly what you're dealing with. He's not a faraway God. He is a God that is close by. Gordon Jensen used to say he's as close as the mention of his name. And this is what Jesus did because he himself has suffered when when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. All of us are being tempted. When when you say, well, I, I have risen to a level of holiness where I am not tempted anymore. Guess what? You have just shown that you have not risen to that level of holiness. You have been tempted now to in such a self righteous manner that you think I don't need God anymore. I'm good. And that's a subtle thing that can happen to us. I don't need to read my Bible. I know what it says. I don't need to pray. God's just going to do what he's going to do anyway. So what's the point? No, no. We, we engage in the word to get to know him and to see the beauty and the promises of what he's given to us. That way when we're tempted, we have something to draw from because those seeds of the word have been planted. That's why I asked you to open your Bible, to check me out. But also, I, I just remember even when I was a little kid, six, seven, eight years old, I'm sitting right in between mom and dad as they're passing certs. Remember certs, the little candy? Two, two, two minutes and one. And they're passing certs to each other. But I remember, you know, I remember the, the pastor having us to open a Bible, and I got a brand new King James Bible with a picture of Jesus on the front. It was really pretty, and I opened it up. And I just remember reading those words, and I can still remember reading those words, and it was like it was tattooed into me. And I was seven, eight, and I wanted more of that. Even as a little kid, I strayed, but it got so tattooed into me that even when I was sinning, I knew that I was sinning. And I, and I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I praise God that after all those years, he brought me to where I needed to be. 
And so I'm thankful that he knows what I'm dealing with every single day. And he knows what you're dealing with every single day. So when he came in that manger 2,000 years ago, he came on a trajectory to die for you. That little baby, trajectory, death for you. To stand in our place to atone for our sins. I don't like thinking about death. Why are you talking about that? I don't like thinking about sin. What are you, why are you talking about that? Because it's a reality. Our world is broken. We need some hope. Christ provides that hope in the truth of what he has accomplished for us on our behalf. So where are you today? We're getting ready to celebrate Christmas. This hidden Christmas that Tim Keller talked about earlier. You know, you know it's possible to celebrate Christmas without Christ. You know it's possible to do that? Think about how you're celebrating it right now. Okay, because I love all the stuff about it. We got our Christmas tree up November 1st. Not ashamed of that. Nope. Right, right after Halloween. Yeah, I'm one of those people. Fine. You know, I love the lights. You know, when they, when they come in to decorate the, the sanctuary, I mean, I'm just slobbering all over myself. This is great. Oh, my goodness. This is wonderful. You, and, and, and the presents and seeing people open the presents and, oh, how thoughtful, thank you, and getting the cards. Oh, someone thought of me. That's wonderful. You have all of these things that are going on, the Christmas programs at school, all of this, all of this, all of this, all of this, and then December 25th comes along, and you're like, oh, yeah, Jesus. It's about him, wasn't it? And there has to be this intentionality, a, almost a push against letting all of that so consume you that you forget that the reason that this child came, I'm pointing to the nativity scene if, I'm, if it's off screen, but um, if you're pointing, I'm pointing to this nativity scene because it's like this, this little baby, this sweet little baby came to die because of our sin. But three days later, he rose from the dead. Death was destroyed. Your fear of death was conquered. No more dominion does, have, does anybody have over you. It's all Christ, all Christ. Do you see why Jesus is better than anything else that this world has to offer? Because Jesus is the one that took care of the one thing we couldn't fix, death and our sin, but he fixed it. So as you celebrate Christmas, we got one more week, seven more days, and I, I, I mentioned that a couple of people, oh, seven more days. Why? Got presents to get? Still got some cards to write? Maybe you haven't gotten your decorations up. Maybe the dog ate your decorations. I don't know. Maybe all of those things are going on and you're like, oh no. Don't let the secular festival erase the spiritual reality. Jesus Christ came to rescue you from your sins. He became like you to taste death for you. And now while you're here, he can help you every single day when you're tempted to go away from him and he knows what you're going through and he'll come along and be able to help you and provide that way of escape that 1 Corinthians 10 talks about. Have you trusted in Christ this morning? By that, I don't mean are you just going to heaven, but I mean, when you, are you treasuring Christ with the decisions that you're making right now, with the lifestyle that you have right now, with the speech that you're speaking right now, with the thoughts that you're thinking, with the places your feet are taking you? Is Christ your Lord? Is Christ your master? Is Christ your all in all? Is Christ better for you than anything else that this world has to offer? Even your own lifestyle and your own decisions and your own thoughts on the matter. Christ, Christ is better than anything. He is the best. I'll give you that. He is the best.
Heavenly Father, help us in all that we do and say. Lord, there's a lot to cover in this passage, and I just trust, Father, that you use this feeble, frail individual as your, as, as your preacher, as your mouthpiece. But I pray, Father, that your, the Holy Spirit, your Spirit, has attended to this word and has driven this truth home to our hearts. Thank you for your word and not leaving us in the dark as to how you move and what you're all about. But thank you, Father, that you sent your son to be like us in order to bring us to make us like you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all that you've accomplished. And I I sense that there may be some people here who have not trusted in Christ. Or if they have trusted in Christ, that there's been a drift. Bring us back home, Father. Bring us to where we need to be. Help us in all that we do and say. And may Jesus Christ be all in all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We sing this wonderful Christmas song.